Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today my friend, Dr. Dennis Edwards. Uh, Dr. Edwards is Associate Professor of New Testament at North Park uh, Seminary. He has a BS in Chemical Engineering from Cornell University, an MDiv in Urban Ministry from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, an MA in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America, and a PhD in Biblical Studies from Catholic University of America. Dennis is, has been a church planter, a pastor in many different settings, is a Bible scholar, and uh, as you will see, he's just an incredibly wise, humble, passionate man of God. And uh, I, I met Dennis a few years ago at a conference that I was speaking at, kind of a small gathering. I met him in passing and have been following him uh, since then. And, and Dennis is just, um, he's, he's one of the more well-respected uh, Christian scholars in America. Um, anybody that knows Dennis speaks off the chart so highly of him. I, I feel like I hear his name everywhere when uh, I talk to people and they're like, hey, do you know Dennis Edwards? I'm like, well, I, I kind of know him. Uh, I'm not sure if he knows me, but I'm, uh, I have met him a couple times. So I was so excited when he said he was willing to come on this podcast. We had a wonderful conversation about race, race relations, um, slavery in the Bible. That was kind of the main thing I wanted to have him on to talk about. He's, he's written articles on on slavery in the Bible. How do we understand slavery in the Bible? And uh, we, we got there. It took us a while to get there because we talked a lot about just ministry and the church and race relations and multi-ethnicity in the church and so on and so forth. So I'm very excited for you to listen to this conversation. It was a really, really good one. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology and raw support the show for as little as five bucks a month. All of the info is in the show notes. All right, let's get to know the one and only Dennis Edwards. All right, hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with Dr. Dennis Edwards, uh, who I met a few years ago, uh, just kind of in passing. And I feel like after we met Dennis, every other person I meet, uh, they ask me, do you know Dennis Edwards? I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, I met him in passing. I don't even know if he knows who I am, but I, I and you, you got a great reputation, brother. So uh, a mentor wow. to many, and I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. Real, It's a real pleasure to be talking with you. I mean, your name keeps popping up and in, in when I look around and listen. So I'm grateful that I have a good reputation. I hope it stays that way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see after this conversation. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, why, just, why don't you, for people that don't know your name, give us your background. How did you get into ministry? How did you get into academics and writing and speaking and all these things? Well, I'll be I'll be relatively brief, but I'm getting old, so it's a long story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and the stories get longer, it seems like, as the years go by. But I grew up in New York City, and, uh, and when I was... A little kid, my father just all of a sudden started taking us to Sunday school. And I still don't know like what was behind that. But I say us, my siblings, I have had three older brothers and three younger sisters and uh, started going to church around the time. I, I mean, Sunday school around the time I was 10 or so. But I grew up in a, attending this little storefront church in Queens that had a one has oneness theology, meaning they believe Jesus only. There's no father, son, Holy Ghost. That's that Trinity is they would say it was a Catholic concept that's not in the Bible. Hmm. So for them, you believe in Jesus only, and you get baptized in the name of Jesus, not Father, Son, Holy Ghost. 
And to know that you are saved, you need to not just be baptized, you also need to speak in tongues, mm. not as a second blessing to show that you have the Spirit, but to, to even be saved. So that, was, that sparked me on a journey as a young preteen, teenager, uh, and time doesn't allow. I think I need to write a book on it because I took everything they taught me very seriously and very literally. And, but I'm also an introvert. And everybody in church that spoke in tongues had a very extroverted experience, shouting and jumping and flipping over chairs and <laughs> things like that. And that was never going to be me. Hmm. And they thought something was wrong with me. I would get people telling me I didn't repent of my sins. I didn't I didn't get it right. I didn't you know, and I wasn't showing the same kind of drama. So I struggled for a long time wondering why God wouldn't save me. Hmm. And that's a story in and of itself. But by the time I got to college. I started meeting some people from different Christian backgrounds, um, and I got involved in a campus ministry. I didn't seek them out, but they found me, and I started going to a Bible study. And it was around those years that I started sensing that God had indeed, you know, had a claim on my life, had saved me, as it were, and uh, and I felt a call to ministry. I was pursuing a degree in, in engineering, but I wound up, uh, and I got that degree, I wound up teaching school, teaching math and chemistry and physics, but then eventually went off to seminary to uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And there I was exposed to even more of what mm-hmm. uh, American Christianity is like and this whole uh, entity of evangelicalism, which has, <laughs> well, that's a whole world in and of itself. But I was exposed to it there at Trinity. And I even worked a bit with the Evangelical Free Church, the denomination behind Trinity Seminary, in my first few years out of seminary. And then that was in New York City. I planted a church called New Community and then moved to Washington, D.C. I served the church on Capitol Hill called Washington Community Fellowship. And after uh, several years there, I planted a church in a different part of D.C. called um, uh, Southeast D.C., a church called Peace Fellowship. And was there for several years and then ended my pastoral ministry in Minneapolis at a church called Sanctuary Covenant Church. So I've had four different pastoral experiences, two churches I planted. Hmm. And, uh, and along the way, I earned a Ph.D. in biblical studies at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Hmm. So I was teaching biblical Greek and, and hmm. Bible courses um, as an adjunct for many years. Now I'm full time at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. Yeah. And are you the academic dean? Are you the president? I forget. What's your what's your actual title? (laughs) I would I would never be either of those things, but I'm associate professor of New Testament. Oh, oh, I thought you were okay. Are you a chair of biblical studies or or Oh yeah, I am the chair of the biblical studies right now, but that's (laughs) I shouldn't laugh because it's a serious thing. But I think I got the position because other people were gone at the time. So you know you get voted into things when other people aren't around. So Yeah, yeah. And, and North Park is part of the ECC, the Evangelical Covenant Church, right? It is. Yeah. And the last few years of my pastoral ministry, as I mentioned in Minnesota, I was at the Sanctuary Covenant Church, and I had my credential transferred from the Mennonite Church to the uh, ECC, Evangelical Covenant Church. Okay. And I found an ecclesial home here. I'm comfortable with the uh, with the ECC, yeah, most part, and I um, and I'm very happy to be at North Park Theological Seminary. Yeah, my good friend uh, Joel Willits is down at the undergrad there. You know Joel? He is. Yes, his office is in our building uh, here at Nival Hall, so oh. I see him from time to time. Well, that's when it wasn't a pandemic. I would see him from time to yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How have good. you guys? Oh, I'm glad you know. Him. 
how have you guys weathered the last year and a half? I mean, is it what's it been like uh, from an educational standpoint or even just personal standpoint? Well, from on the seminary side, I think we flexed very well. I think many of us were used to doing things online, uh, even, you know, the synchronous online, like with mm-hmm. with with Zoom or something like that. Um, so I think the college faculty had a, many of them had a tougher time because they weren't not all of them were as used to using online platforms. Mm-hmm. But I, the seminary, we rolled pretty well at first. And then we started having a more hybrid setup. We met in person and some students could log in. So we would have uh, that going on. And my last, just finished up this school year, I had most of my students in person. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we did pretty well. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, I see a book behind you, Might from the Margins. That came out yes. in, in September. You joked uh, that it was overshadowed by Esau McCauley's book, uh, Reading, <laughs> Reading While Black, which blew up right. and won awards and everything. I had Esau on the show um, I think three weeks before he released the book. I don't think I can get him now. He's, he's, too, he's, too, in, he's too busy, man. Um, yeah, he's too busy to return my calls. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the, tell us the gist of your book and uh, yeah. Yes, thank you. You know, the subtitle is The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice. Mm. You know, a lot of what was brewing inside of me, and you could tell that even as I was giving you a quick version of my background, that I've been in these different ecclesial circles, you know, from a very um, small denomination that I grew up in to being around more, what you might say, um, mainstream evangelicalism. And in many of the places I ministered, we, we said we were trying to be, and you can fill in the word here that was popular at the time, interracial, cross-cultural, mm-hmm. multi-ethnic, all of those words would apply. And, and I learned over the years that many times when we would say those things, people had different images of what they meant in terms of multi-ethnic ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it often was still the same frame of, of white uh, supremacist, maybe white-centered Christianity that maybe had a sprinkling of other people in it. Hmm. And, and I'll be honest, that frustrated me over time. And I said, you know, when we, when we look at the church broadly, look at the church biblically, we're not seeing this white Eurocentric um, entity having center stage. So I said, really, when we talk about cross-cultural ministry or however we want to describe it, it's not so much about uh, proximity as it is about power. Hmm. You know, who gets to make decisions? To whom are we listening? Um, what theological questions are we asking? So when I wrote the book, I, I wrote it to say, look, I'm not trying to center white voices to say this is what you guys need to do to get us. You know, I wasn't saying that. I said, <clears throat> excuse me, how can we, as people who have been pushed to the margins, how do we like claim our identity and then show how the, the way we practice the Christian faith is really the way of Jesus? Hmm. So I, I had, that's the main idea there, and it's coupled with some of the work I had done in First Peter. I did a commentary in First Peter, and I started realizing that, you know, here's church, Christians who are marginalized. They're part of what we could call the diaspora, hmm. yet they are told repeatedly in there how they look like Jesus, how they walk the way of Jesus in their marginal status. Hmm. So those ideas came together for me in the book. So what I try to do is map out a way that uh, folks who have been marginalized can practice solidarity with each other and and mm-hmm. demonstrate a better way, or maybe I should say a more robust way of living the Christian faith. Would you still be a fan of like multi-ethnic churches? They just need to be done differently than they've 
been done in the past or uh, yeah yeah that's a that's a fair question and i because i you know like i said i didn't come out of one of the traditional black denominations like ame or yeah. or national baptist or even kojic i i was on the fringes so i never really claimed this identity of being in one of those denominations so i didn't really have a denomination to go back to that theo- theologically i fit so i felt kind of nomadic along the way so I would say, to answer your question more directly, multi-ethnic ministry is still, I think, a noble calling. I just think it's it's been done in a way that um, has uh, pushed aside the voices of those who've been on the mm. margins, right? Um, mm. So, so yes, I think it should be done differently. In fact, it used to be that we never would expect um, a, a pastor to represent their ethnic background that wasn't white. Um, and if that person did, we still wanted the church to be done in a way that white people were comfortable. Yeah. I mean, Corey Edwards, and I don't think we're related at all, but she has already written on this, um, the uh, Elusive Dream, her book, Elusive Dream, on how even in multiracial churches with uh, ethnic minority leadership, they still yeah. function like white churches okay. because you're only as multi-ethnic to the extent that white people are comfortable. <laughs> So let's be, I mean, that's the way it works because if white people feel like, oh, the black people are we're singing too much of their music, we're doing too much of this, we're doing, then they'll walk. And then the church doesn't look multi anymore. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in churches that have been trying, and even been pastor of them, trying to negotiate this reality of what does it look like to be multi because white people seem to be the ones that would be upset. Now, if you do things that are too much like the contemporary Christian music scene, and there are a lot of black folks who are upset with that. They may walk too. Yeah. But really the reality of it is a lot depends on the leadership. Yeah. So that's a long answer to say, I still believe in multi-ethnic ministry, yeah. but you've got to be um, thoughtful about how you engage these various aspects of communal life. Well, it's, it's, um, I, and I love what you're saying. Cause I, I, um, years ago, Derwin Gray and I had this conversation and he, he, it, it was, he framed it as, you know, assimilation versus integration. Is yeah, there a, yeah. and, and you know, it's taken white, us white people a while to understand that much of evangelicalism has a white culture to it. I don't, okay. I, 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 I like to be really careful with racial phrases. So I, I, I would even want to qualify sure, that, sure. but a white dominated church has produced a certain kind of culture, tone, music is a big piece, um, you know, t- t- punctualness, um, I mean, style, uh, feel and everything, right? I mean, and, and it's taken a while for me and many others to be self-aware of that. Sometimes it's, yeah. it helps going into uh, other ethnically dominated churches to see, wow, this is just a different experience right. in many different ways. Um, yeah. And it produces a certain uncomfortable or not, maybe not uncomfortable, it could be uncomfortable, maybe an unfamiliarity that... It can be exciting for some people. Could be challenging for others. So, uh-huh. um, so, I, so what you're saying is it's not because it's one thing. F- <laughs> it's one thing to have a multi-ethnic congregation. It's another thing, thing to have a multi-ethnic leadership. But you're going a step further and saying it's still another thing to have a multi-ethnic tone, feel, nature, vibe. I mean, I, yeah. That, am I on to yeah. something? There is that kind of that third oh, I, piece I, that. I you're hitting it. You're hitting it. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's so many levels to this and a lot of books been getting written on it. And I know Darwin, cause I used to teach a bit at a Northern seminary before I came oh, to yeah, North Park. Yeah. So I know him. And shortly after he got his D men, in fact, we, we've had some conversation. 
And I and you know there are cynics. I'll be honest. There are cynics who say, well, look, the multi-ethnic church is was created for people in in mixed marriages, right, in, in cross-cultural marriages. So it was a place to say, look, if you're not uh, both, you know, both partners are not in the same racial group or whatever, you have this place. But I think there's something beyond that. I mm-hmm. think there's something about the witness of what love looks like across, you know, racial um, barriers or 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 even other constructions in our society, like socioeconomics and all these other things, which has which has been, I would say, as prominent in, in my own ministry years as as race has been, is to see people from different walks of life in the mm-hmm. same space. But in all of these attempts, right? Uh, across economics, across racial division, whatever. The point for me is to say, how are we making decisions and moving together as a community? Because that is really, to me, the essence of of church is how do we function as a community? Mm-hmm. So what I've seen happen, and I'm you know I'm not knocking everybody, but what I've seen happen is that there is some person who's got a vision. They try to make it fit what they think it should be, and then the folks who don't get that, they they have to walk. So a lot does depend on this one person having a real, you know, comprehensive understanding of race and class and Bible and all kinds of things. And to the extent they fall short in that, the church is going to be weak. Mm. I don't believe in that one person centered way of doing things. So what I'm saying is if we truly are multi, Mm -hmm. then our leadership is going to have to reflect it. That's going to reflect in the character of how we do things. Yes, worship, the way we eat together, the way we we serve together, all of those things. So I um yeah, I kind of have this idealism about what that could look like, but it's more than just who we put up on the stage. Okay. Which is what I hear. Oh, we just got to make sure it looks diverse up front or we get, you know, multicultural singing group or we have No, there's something that's got to be deeper in our DNA that says I love you. Mm-hmm. Not just not just that I'm going to look around and find people that look mm-hmm. like you and we can sit near each other. No, I love you. Mm-hmm. And if I love you, then I'm going to be allow myself to be shaped by who you are. That to me requires real community. Mm. Yeah. That's that's really helpful. And it's like you said just to yeah, the the decision making power that that's a huge piece too cuz you could have a multi-ethnic leadership that has a lot of the power is absorbed by one ethnicity. Not, not maybe explicitly. Oh, yeah. It just kind of ends up, you know, who, sure. who planted the church, who had the vision, who's got the type That's A personality, right. who out That's of right. maybe ethnic heritage won't voice out an opinion against somebody who's perceived to have the power, and and, and that those those right. that that gets really complicated, you know. Um, it it does. I mean, and and I don't want to make um, uh, broad generalizations about different people groups, but my, the church we started in DC, um, new, uh, peace fellowship, I have warm regard for that. The pastor there now, Delante Goldston, he's an awesome guy and I'm glad that we know each other, but I don't have any hands on that ministry. I mean, it was something that I started and by grace of God could, uh, you know, let others take, mm-hmm. but the, but we have people from, you know, la- Latino people, African-American folks and, and uh, and Asian folks, mostly Korean American, and I and you know there's something about learning from each other mm-hmm. that I realize doesn't happen always in the big setting, but in our minds it has to be big. And I know Derwin Gray has managed to get a big size ministry that is multi ethnic, but in a lot of places that 
the bigness is mm. because of maybe a whole bunch of other things. And we'll find the relationship piece, the discipleship piece to be maybe a little bit uh, lacking. All of this to say is, I think in those smaller places where community gets formed, mm-hmm. that's, to me, that's gold. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. really where it happens. So yes, it's not just about who we put up front. It's about how those relationships are being developed and allowed mm-hmm. to flourish. Yeah. I was at a church, I mean, this is kind of a, mi- it might be minor, but it does help contribute to culture, mm-hmm. I think, where... All yeah. the worship was in, um, it was in Swahili, Spanish, and English equally, though. So the first song led with Spanish, and there was English titles on the thing. The next one led with English. The next one led with Swahili. So we're singing in Swahili, but there's English, you know, subtitles, so you, you can understand it. Um, and it was like that, again, that that might be, it can't be just that, but I thought that was, that was good yeah. and beautiful. Like, yeah. like, there was, it wasn't like, we're going to have, you know, Spanish subtitles or a token song in Spanish once a month or something. It was like, it it was very much kind of equal, you know, and because that reflected the congregation, the congregation had like maybe 20 nations represented in in the congregation. Um, So I don't know. It was was really, it was beautiful, man. It was great. Yeah. Oh, that, that's awesome. I mean, I certainly don't have the final word on it. I struggled a lot because uh, in my New York experience, I mean, there's people from all over. Yeah. You know, and we didn't have to have any multicultural potluck. I mean, people just brought what they ate. <laughs> it was just know? a potluck. <laughs> right. It was just a potluck. And you find, you know, just this remarkable diversity of food and, and energy and such. But we were, we did communicate in English. I mean, for the most part. Um, but I have watched other models. And uh, and there are, there are creative ways to do what you just said. I guess what I'm reluctant to do is prescribe how it should be done. Yeah. I think what I'm really trying to say is those questions need to be shaped by the community. Mm. You know, I mean, it's like the early church in Acts 6 when the when the uh, Grecian widows and the you know Judean widows, they're not getting treated the same. The community's got to come up with a way to solve this problem. Mm. Right. Mm. So so you get these wise individuals full of the Holy Spirit who help to mediate this. Right. So I'm saying the same thing should be happening in our churches is that we should say, look, if there's different language groups, how will we do this? And and I've been in Mennonite circles where there's simultaneous translation going mm-hmm. on um, throughout the whole service uh, and, and, and songs are being sung in the different groups that are present there. Um, but I but ultimately, I see the power should be vested in the community to, to discern that how no one gets overlooked mm-hmm. in terms of, um, you know, power and influence and such. Yeah. I, I just had a rich Vladis Vlotis on my podcast. He, he passes a yeah. church in, in Queens, in I think, right? With like yep. 70 different nations represented oh, in this church. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, the thing about getting old is that there's, I've been able to see some of these wonderful things happen. And I feel like we were ahead of the game. Look, when I started planting the church in New York, it was in 1989. Hmm. And, um, and over, you know, I met uh, Dr. Tim Keller, who, who actually, they were already planting a Redeemer uptown. And, but we had some mutual friends that allowed us to meet. So I'm, I'm at a meeting and I'm like this young, I'm 29, you know, and, um, and watching, you know, these, they, they were all white guys in the room but talking about this church redeemer and redeemer had already started, even though they say 89, they had already started in 88 forming and shaping and coming together. I didn't even know that's the way people planted church. I didn't know anything about planting church. I'll just be honest with you. I came out of seminary with this, with this goal for a multi-ethnic ministry in New York city. And, uh, and little did I know what all what was going on around me, but 
But I guess what I'm trying to say, though, in, in that is I learned about New Life over in Queens. And at the time, um, uh, Pete Scazzaro was, was, uh, had formed that community. And I was starting to learn more about what was going on in, in uh, the people who had some insight into church planting and to multi, multi-ethnic ministry. So many times I say, man, I wish I had known back then the stuff I know now. <laughs> I could have had a more successful, yeah. uh, you know, 30s decade. <laughs> when, uh, Dennis, when you look back at the last year or so, a yeah, lot of race yeah. conversations, a lot yes. of polarization. Are you like, I don't know. I, I'm not even sure my, what my question is. Like, how have you processed the last year, specifically how the evangelical yeah. church yeah. has handled the race yeah. conversation as it's been so you know, kind of everywhere. Um, right, yeah. right. Well, I have mixed um, responses to that. On the one side, I'm actually very encouraged that I have seen more white people in my lifetime <laughs> willing to reckon with uh, with the power thing I'm talking about, with, uh, you know, white supremacy, with mm-hmm. the Eurocentric nature of Christian faith in America. I mean, the, the stuff that I couldn't, that I tried to talk about 30 years ago and got pushed to the side like I'm just an angry guy. I, I guess I just mm. didn't have the language for it. I didn't have the terms. I mean, we, we weren't talking about white fragility or mm-hmm. or white supremacy in these kinds of terms back then, at least not in the mainstream. So on the one hand, I'm encouraged that I'm seeing more white people who I feel like are seeing what Christianity has done, good and bad. And they're willing to say, look, there's some unhealthy things here that need to be rooted out. It's not really the nature of Christ. On the other hand, I'm surprised at the pushback. Hmm. I'm, 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 maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I, I get like, I don't know, just it, it catches me sometimes to see how many Christians are so invested in their power and their structures that they can't hear anything that challenges that. Hmm. And whether it's about women preaching or whether it's about um uh, ethnic minorities having uh, 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 influence on the way Christianity it, it operates in America. Even just throwing out the term justice has become like yeah. like this divisive word. And I'm like, oh my goodness, how how in the world? But uh, but I mean, that's not a new thing. But it's just kind of surprising to me how entrenched certain things are at times. And I know I say I shouldn't be surprised, but but I am because I feel like progress is getting made. And then I'm like, whoa, really? Yeah. Maybe I should just stay off social media. But so I guess (laughs) I'm saying overall, though, (laughs) overall, I feel like progress has been made, but I'm a grandfather now. And I, and I say, okay, progress has been made in my lifetime, but not a lot. Hmm. My, my own children still are, you know, they still have their questions about what spaces are safe to enter as a Christian. You know, like, can I go to that church and feel like I can be affirmed for who I am and in my racial identity that I won't be uh, suspect or I won't be held at, you know, be be looked at, you know, side eye. So I still think we're at that place, at least that place. And uh, but I am encouraged, as I said earlier, that we're having more conversations. Um, I think we're beyond the conversation point, but I will just say that there's more people willing to wade into difficult waters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, it's. Uh... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been quite the year, man. Um, yeah, and one has. thing, I guess it's um, dis- discouraging, discouraging and annoying when I'm seeing some Christians and churches, you know, they're they're 
they're very vocal about critiquing critical race theory, oh, yeah. for instance, and yet they haven't said anything about race, period, up until that. It's like they come out of the woodwork, critique CRT. It's like if you haven't been having a race conversation in a yeah. gospel-centered, kingdom-minded way up until right. now, and then you're just going to come out and cr- critique CRT, then go back to doing your thing. Like right. To me, that's e- – even, even, if, even if your critiques are legit, that yeah. – just trajectory. I, I as a white guy, I'm thinking that that would be probably really annoying and frustrating for somebody of color to, oh, to see white churches yeah. do that. I don't know. Oh, but. it is frustrating. <laughs> and I I didn't even go down the CRT route just now and answer yeah. your question, but that was in my head. And and I just I find it I don't know. It's just there's something really very disingenuous. It's it's what you just said. I mean, we haven't been talking about race, but so when people are working from a frame where they've thought about things in a deep way, trying to borrow the best of scholarship and grab onto what they can to help solve some problems. And then you're going to get mad and say, well, that's not the way we should go. When you've been keeping us out of your spaces, you've been uh, practicing a racialized way of Christianity for so long. And now all of a sudden, but that's not the solution. I just, for me, I don't really have much patience for that. I, yeah. So that's why even in my, from the margins, I say pretty explicitly that it's, it's a book that's not trying to center white voices. You know, just real quickly, if you remember the movie uh, Black Panther, yeah. there's a scene in there where Agent Ross is uh, trying to, with with the principal characters um, from Wakanda, trying to get help from the Jabari tribe. And and King T'Challa is incapacitated. I won't say too much, but the movie's been out for a while. People, people <laughs> know. But at this point, though, when, when they come to get help from the Jabari tribe, uh, uh, Agent Ross starts speaking for the group. The one white guy starts speaking for everybody. And the Jabari start to bark and and to bang, you know, the uh, the, the, the uh, leader he bangs his staff down, and and the tribe starts barking and they drown out Agent Ross. I wanted to stand up in the movie theater and cheer because I said this this is what we act because even the white guy who means well, yeah, winds up taking this position of power and privilege and just assumes that their voice should should be in charge. So I just say, you know, there's there's. That's the way I've seen Christianity operate. So the folks who are talking, you know, get upset with CRT and all that. I'm saying, you know what? In my mind, you haven't actually even earned the right to weigh in on this. Yeah. I mean, we've got too much time and too much energy has been spent for you doing what you know, doing your thing. And so I'm, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't even have time to refute that. It's not even worth it to me. It's like there's too much love that that has to happen. There's too much community that needs to be developed. There's too many people's lives that are being hurt and and people being alienated and people being being uh, disenfranchised. There's too much of that work to be done for me to worry about the power guys who get upset whether we talk about race or racism too much or or try to find all the good things about Trump and Trumpism and all. I don't have time for that. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. just uh, that that's just not a fight that I want to fight. I'm curious, based on what you just said about that. First of all, that that character. What's his name? The guy with the tribe. Um, uh, uh, um, oh my goodness, the Jabari tribe. Yeah, I'm yeah. Getting the, the leader's name. He's my favorite. He's my favorite character Mbaku. in the movie. Mbaku. Yeah, he's he's he's. I mean, obviously the other two main guys are awesome, but he's <laughs> he's so good. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious if you feel, and I'm I I. This is a genuine question. I don't even know which. I, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious because okay. I've heard from some of my other black friends that yeah. Um, that they feel kind of a similar way with even like white progressives that, in a sense, might be um, 
recognizing the race thing, but they still have kind of a colonial kind of approach. Like I, I need to be responsible for helping these my black friends, and it's almost I, I've heard from some people that it's almost. Mm-hmm isn't dignifying their own agency to think that my white progressive approach needs to kind of like be their savior again. I don't know. Is that, Oh, I, I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, you know, now that I'm older, I feel like I can say what I want. You know, people might, you know, it's like the you know, uncle over in the corner is like, okay, he gets to speak every now and then <laughs> and maybe we'll humor him. I feel like I'm, I'm at that place in my life right now, but in all seriousness, that critique is is on the money too, and I you know, I do appreciate people who have a similar um, uh, appreciation for the scriptures and for the way of Jesus, and they see that way as a way of justice, mm-hmm. and they're ready to raise their voices. But but there's also a way that whiteness can, uh, even progressive whiteness can uh, still work to marginalize my voice. You know? <laughs> it's sort of like well, you know, it's. I, I say it's not white splaining, but it's the kind of white man splaining, and that comes from even from progressives. Like, well, I I can do this better. I'll I'll just go. and and I'm not saying that people are consciously saying that. No, yeah, yeah. But but they can posture and position themselves because they are used to being, they're used to their voices being heard, and they yeah. used to they even know the mechanism of how to get into those spaces. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I see that happening a lot, and I I mean I'm not uh, I don't spend my time criticizing everybody because there's a lot to criticize. And I think that happens a lot on Twitter, but I do feel like, um, yes, it happens on both sides. I think, I think there's a, a cultural way of being mm-hmm. that, um, that, uh, has in, in, kind of embedded in, um, in our society where white guys feel a certain confidence to just, you know, do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's progressive and, mm-hmm. and uh, conservative. What would you want to say to my audience that, and my audience is going to be very sympathetic to everything you're saying and very eager to be self-aware and to do better. Like it's, it's a, I love my, my, I carved out a pretty cool audience that listens to my podcast. Um, What would you want to say to them? Like the people like, okay, well help me. Like, how can I um, do better than maybe my, uh, the previous kind of generation has handled the race conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, and that is a great question. I get asked it a lot actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and sometimes I don't want to answer because I think, um, uh, my answer will be critiqued if I don't say it exactly right and all of that. But the, the reality of it is, you know how they used to say all politics is local, um, meaning, you know, that that's really where policy starts to get shaped. Well, I want to say all Christian community is really local and and in many ways, you know, it's I see a stuff on Twitter about how long we should preach or how we should do this. And I, I mean, those are local decisions in my mind. Right. And I say the same thing here is that if if you as a white person genuinely want to uh, help, whatever that means, I mean, it, and just, you know, advance the cause of Christ along with your uh, 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 ethnically minority sisters and brothers, then you find yourself in community with others and you learn that way you know you learn what it what it means so in other words i wouldn't assume i don't go into relationships assuming the outcome mm. i have to find the sense of community and belonging so and then you know use my voice as i can so i, I guess i don't want to have a formula and say hey mm-hmm. look just just do it this way or do it that way i say build a community 
Be mm. part of your community. Now, my friend David Swanson, you know, David, we're in the same denomination, and he talks about rediscipling the white church. And I said, we were on a panel discussion one time, and somebody asked the question about, you know, what do I say to, and I said, you know, I don't say it anymore. I don't try to tell white people what to be. I said, I let David do it. I said, because, you know, in many ways, David has this platform to speak to other white sisters and brothers. And I say, hey, amen. I'll, I'll let him do that because I don't want to, uh, it's it's somewhat, um, um, I don't, trauma is a too strong a word, but it's, it, it, it provokes something in me yeah. when I'm sort of reliving or rehearsing things that I've gone through before, messages I've given, uh, situations I've been in. So I'm asking mm. white people to be part of community, learn what that means, help be shaped by other voices and, and people who don't come from your world. Mm. And then you'll learn like what space mm. you, you fill and how best to use your gifts. I'm not for silencing anybody, but I'm all for mutuality. Is it uh, one more question? I, 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 the main sure. reason why I wanted to bring you on, man, was to talk about slavery in the Bible. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I want to do just this hardcore biblical studies here, but um, sure. is it? And yeah, the, I I just ask honest questions, man. So just would love please, to hear your thoughts. Um, it, is oh, yeah. it almost tiring, or I don't maybe insulting to be too strong, but to have? I mean, even like me, a white person, asking you to help me in the race conversation. Like, is that is that get? Um, is that is even that kind of exhausting or is that a, even a legitimate thing for white people to do yeah. to find their person of color and say, Hey, help me to be better. Well, or whatever. Like, you Cause you're kind well, of touching on it a little bit. Um, but I am. And I think, and that's actually a great question, Preston. I, I, I find that, you know, the folks in my age group, maybe many of us have, especially in Christian circles. I mean, we've, we are kind of tired and, mm-hmm. um, but I can't speak for others, but I would say it does get a little exhausting and and uh, and in some ways frustrating because we've an- we've tried to answer that question for 30, 40 mm. years. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I was in my 20s in seminary and having some of the same conversations that I'm hearing today. And so that's that does get a little frustrating. Yeah. Right. But I know a lot of African-Americans and other folks who want to be in that, that Okay. Want to be in a space where they are communicating with white folks and how things should could be different. Um, my friend Oshita Moore, she just wrote a book called Dear White Peacemakers. You know, so there's some folks, African American folks, who want to be in a space right. where they are helping white people to negotiate these questions. And so I, I can't make a general rule, yeah. but I would say I hope white people would understand when some of us don't want to engage. I hope they would understand to say, look, I've answered those questions. I've tried to negotiate that. And for a certain self-preservation, I don't want to keep going down that route. Because yeah. the more I'll, the more I do that, the more I invite the criticism from the folks who I don't even didn't even think were listening to me, you know. <laughs> and so, in some ways, you have to engage that, yeah. right? You know, there's there's going to be some white person who doesn't like something I said, and rather than saying, "Oh, I don't agree with Dennis on this," they'll have to come and fix me. You know, they'll have to come after me to get mm. like you said this. And how could you mean that, right? And our world like encourages that kind of thing. You have no relationship with me, but you read something that I wrote, mm-hmm. and now you're like really angry with me, and you gotta fix me, right? I, I'm not like I'm not looking for that, you know. <laughs> but if we have a community, yeah. If we if we're in a in in some relationship together, and we're talking, and you said, hey Dennis, you said such and such. Really? Do you mean this? And I'm like, oh okay, that's how you heard it. Let's talk about that. That's way different, right? In my view. 
So I'm I'm okay with community. I'm just yeah. so tired of of those other things. But you might be just talking, you know, you're talking yeah. to a tired 60-year-old man. So on <laughs> one hand, <laughs> so I can't speak for all the others, but I would say, you know, I'm even watching like our friend Esau that we mentioned earlier. I see him on social media. And even he's had his challenges, as popular as he is, he's had some challenges that appears, at least on social media, with dealing with folks who don't don't share his viewpoints, you know? And I'm like, man, some of us, we, we had that. We weren't on social media because it didn't exist, mm-hmm. but we had it in our spaces, in our denominational spaces, in, in academic spaces. And we fought a lot of fights that didn't get public, you know, but they hurt us nevertheless, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, it's my choice now how much I want to wade into some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... And hopefully I'm at an age where if I write stuff down and no, and people don't like it, that's OK. I mean, I got disinvited from a church after somebody saw Mike from the margins. And and uh, and I do go after some aspects of white evangelicalism in there. Yeah. And I don't know if that's what turned them off, but I got disinvited. <laughs> and, you know, something like that. I almost forgot about it to this moment. But something like that would have bothered me so much in my 30s. Like, that's the group I want to speak to. You know what? Now I'm like, that's all right. Yeah, it's all right. I've learned over uh, there. There are a lot of parallels between Mm -hmm. that I recognize as my as I've you know engaged uh, the LGBTQ conversation and and come at it from a traditional kind of straight perspective, and then just getting to know the complexity and nuance and how it's been mishandled in the past and how. A lot yeah. of correction, and when it triggered when you said, you know, they try to fix you, you know, and it's like, man, right. oh, I've talked to so many LGBT people, or they felt that way. They're like, I'm just tired of sharing my story, yeah. or I'm tired of trying to help straight right. people get it because we've been right. doing this for so many years, and it's just, I just, they keep coming back and wanting to fix me, or do you know, or, yeah, I don't know. I, so I, I can, I can. Ten years yeah. ago, I wouldn't have understood what you're talking about. Now I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I, I kind of get, I do get it. I mean, not personally right. get it, but I understand, definitely understand yeah. the idea of being well, just I, being I exhausted. I, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. That's actually a thoughtful analysis. Yeah. yeah thank All you. right, let's transition to some uh, a biblical studies conversation. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, the whole the whole idea of slavery in the Bible. You've written an a, 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 an article on slavery for one of the premier. I mean, uh, biblical studies resources that the dictionary is it the dictionary of Paul? Is that the one you did or, um, the dictionary of Paul and his letters? Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of the go-to resource on, you know, getting a good overview for, for different topics. So, mm-hmm. um, right. how should we, I guess my main leading question is uh, how should we understand this fact, fact, I think that the Bible doesn't condemn, seem to condemn slavery. Now, you could say Paul kind of guts it from the inside out. He definitely talks about it in very different ways. Um, but you have the Old Testament that seems to regulate it, not not prohibit it. Was slavery, is this a very different kind of slavery than what we experienced, you know, in antebellum South? Or, yeah. yeah. You, you know, I mean, there's various questions that often come up. So I don't, I don't know where you right. want to start. Just help us understand what the Bible well, says about slavery and then how, how do we kind of apply that to today? Well, yeah, and those are great questions. I think those, that's really the heart of it. Uh, you know, our, a friend of ours, a mutual friend, I think, uh, Scott McKnight, yeah. he's a New Testament scholar. I'm quoting, I'm going to start off with a quote from him right away because he did a commentary on on Philemon. And you used to didn't see many full-length commentaries on Philemon. And he treats the topic of slavery at length in there, mm. ancient slavery as well as uh, contemporary slavery. 
uh, including uh, slavery in the so-called New World. And he says something that, you know, first caught me, and I realized, you know, I, I, I see what he's saying. He says that Paul was blind, this is his words, to the immorality of slavery. Hmm. Now, he's not saying Paul was blind to slavery. He's saying he was blind to the immorality of slavery. In other words, he didn't see it as a moral issue. And I thought, wow, hmm. you know, I had to sit with that for quite a while to see where he was going with that. But in some sense, that's there, that's what's happening with people who are in a in a world where stuff's going all around them. You know, it's it's sort of like um, until we started paying attention to climate change, we didn't think too much about exhaust coming out of the cars. You know, it's sort of like it's just that's just the world. You got a car. My goodness, you can go from A to B and you can do it faster than walking or faster than your oars. And but we weren't thinking about the exhaust coming out of it. It was just there. And we didn't think about the exhaust necessarily in moral terms. We just thought of it as, oh, wow, that, that car is blowing out more dark smoke than that car. Is, you know? <laughs> and then eventually we start to see how it's affecting the environment. And we're still at a place where we're not sure if it's a moral issue. We're still at a place where some say, OK, climate change, maybe climate change is happening, but humans aren't a part of it. You know? So you could say in one sense, we're, there are a lot of Christians that are blind to the immorality of, of pollution. They don't see it as a moral issue. So if if I could just borrow that kind of thinking, even though the situations are different, borrow that kind of thinking, that's a world that Paul is immersed in. The household is so central to the way that they do stuff, all the way from Aristotle's days. That's The household is the backbone of society. This is the way it operates, you know? This is just what people are born into. This is just the way that they function. In the household, the potafamilius is in charge, and then you know, then the, then you have wife and I mean, citizen has higher place than people aren't citizen. I mean, it's just the way that the world operated. This is not to excuse it. I'm mm-hmm. just saying that's the world he's born mm-hmm. into. And that's mm-hmm. the world that he is negotiating. So what I guess what I'm saying is to assign the moral categories to it. We don't see him doing that. Now, I don't see why I, I, I wasn't prepared to say why he wasn't doing it, but but the way Scott says it as he's blind to it, to, blind to the morality. I could, I guess I can kind of see that, mm. is that it was the way society functioned, but not a, a moral value assigned to it. I do think, however, that the New Testament does do what you were saying earlier. It, it does sow some seeds for building this new community, this new way of being. And in this new way of being, uh, there ought not be slave or free, male, female, right, Jew or Gentile. So there's this new way of being that says family, the new family in Christ transcends mm-hmm. or supersedes those uh, um, societal relationships and boundaries. Um, yeah, but, but, you know, New Testament doesn't go as far as we would want it to go yeah. in terms of denouncing slavery. I, I, I'm not going to pretend that it does. Right. But but it was a it's, it's a whole different world. And and it's also not fair to say, I'll just say this one more thing, that, well, the difference is because their slavery was different than our slavery. I mean, it's, it's still slavery. I mean, <laughs> you still have bodies that are at the disposal of the paddle familiars, right? You still have, okay, it might not have been skin color based, but you still have people who thought slaves from a certain part of the world were better than slaves from another part of the world. I mean, you still had a sort of ethnic or national hierarchy in terms of slaves. So... So there were there were definitely points of resonance, you know, right. with uh, with American uh, with any slave society. There's there's this this way of power uh, taking control of other people's bodies. Yeah. So I'm not going to try to make it sound like it was better, but I will say that there was a way that it was regulated um, 
in societies mm -hmm. that probably was different depending okay. on that society. I think Aristotle said, if I remember the quote, that a slave is like a lifeless tool or something. So, um, yeah, he did. He called them human tools. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, that's pretty, I mean, <laughs> kind of hard to sanitize. Now, what about the Old Testament and slavery? I mean, mm. it, even there, wasn't it something like somebody had a debt to pay off? They could sell, like, become a slave, a servant? Or is that even, is that different than what we're even talking about in, in the New Testament? Well, or, I, I won't pretend to, to be an expert on the Old Testament as well, um, but I would say that's was behind my comment about regulating, because I do think that the Old Testament, again, it's the culture everybody's swimming in, and, and but they regulate it. I mean, even the whole eye for eye, tooth for a tooth is yeah. regulating how do I how do I get justice? You know, mm -hmm. I, it's just tooth for tooth. It's not like whole body for tooth, yeah. you know, so it's so there's a certain regulating. Uh, so there was a regulating of of how um, how you treat the slave and also um, when people could be freed and mm -hmm. all of that. But I'm not as expert on that. Okay. So I don't want to uh, say more than I can say. I would say for New Testament slavery, though, we do have I mean, we, a lot of people bank on Philemon, right? Bank on this book to say, see, you know, Paul is telling him the free Onesimus. He never says it. He never says free Onesimus. He never he never comes straight out and say it. And he could have said that. But he's pushing for something deeper than that, I would even say, yeah. that the deeper thing is family. So if Onesimus can be seen as part of the family, this is now going to regulate how Christians relate to one another, regardless of societal um, uh -huh. um, boundaries. And, and as Scott McKnight would even say, and I, I invoke him a lot because I like his commentary, but as he would say, a lot of this. A lot, a lot of our imagination should go to how the other slaves in Philemon's household would have heard that letter being read. <laughs> you know, um, when he tells them to take back Onesimus, no longer a slave, but as a brother. That does set a tone for family that's different yeah. from how society operates. I'm and I'll say this last piece here. I think it's last. <laughs> but if society, <laughs> if the Christian community is a small part of the big society, and it was, it was a very small part of the bigger society, then... And then Paul is probably not even thinking in terms of making general comments about the way society operates, but about how you ought to operate as this Christ community in that broader world. So in mm. that Christ community, there's no, the labels fall, fall off. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if, if it comes down to a bigger question of the, the role of kind of church and state, in, in the first century, the, like you said, there was no category of some sort of democratic you know, addressing of injustices right. in the Roman world. It was right. ra rather than try to change the Roman way of doing things, you were, we were, they, they were to embody a different way, a different polis, yes. right? A different society. Um, yeah. Well said. Embody so, a different way. Yeah. yeah. So they even, yeah. In that statement that you said in Philemon, that, that, that's unparalleled, right? Receive your slave back as a brother, as somebody, a right. co-equal like that's right. But even in right. Ephesians, um, so did, doesn't he say slaves honor your or masters honor like well Col Colossians he definitely says something like and 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 this would actually be interesting because if Colossians if the letter to the Colossians is sent to Philemon's house because if Philemon's in Colossae right. then there's some overlap here but he tells the masters to treat your slaves with with justice or with equity is a word that he uses I mean it could be translated equity huh. so there's this sense of fairness that the masters are supposed to have toward their toward their slaves now the household codes in, in and of themselves are problematic i mean i'll be i'll be straight with you because yeah. the 
you know, the fact that he even addresses these segments of society and he doesn't necessarily lift up the one that's on the bottom, although he challenges the ones that are on the top, yeah. husband, master, you know, parent. But, um, yeah, yeah, the, ma- the, the masters are, are challenged. They say, look, you got a master in heaven. You need, you need to treat your slaves justly. Yeah. The, the one, the two that I get really hung up on is, yeah, the vice versa. Slaves obey your masters as unto the Lord, knowing that a lot of slaves are treated as sex. I mean, sex objects. They were obviously mistreated just physically, let alone verbally and everything to say, obey your masters. I get the theological point kind of, but I just, I can't, I cannot read that. And just like, I don't know. It just doesn't sit. It just does not sit right. <laughs> and and also in first yeah. Corinthians seven, when Paul says, if you're a slave, don't seek to be released, like remain as you are. And I, I again, I understand a, you know, they, yeah. I understand the, the context, which you said that it's more nuanced and complicated, but that's still, I just read that. It just, I, but I read the book of Joshua and it well, doesn't sit right with me. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. Right. And there's, there's a lot of points of tension. No question. The first Corinthians seven passage, that one is, uh, that one's convoluted. Admittedly, Esau Macaulay treats that one in his, in reading while black, the first Corinthians seven, cause it's, it's difficult. Some people think Paul is saying straight out, get out if you can get out. Mm. Uh, others think the translation is stay in, you know. Uh, so that's that's a tough one. But coming back to the household codes, yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of um, of of keeping yourself safe that's going on. I mean, Peter does this in First Peter. He says, look, you might be suffering unjustly. He uses that word, unjustly, in chapter two. Yeah. But he still tells the slaves to um, to to stay in there in this situation and in some ways i liken that to like driving while black you know you do Mm -hmm. you 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 keep your hands on the wheel you don't reach for the glove compartment not because you think this is right because society's messed up Mm -hmm. but you but you see it as a way of perhaps preserving your life and you say in light of this unjust messed up society what can help me stay alive and uh and in some ways, that's what Peter seems to be doing. And maybe, maybe Paul as well is in a sense to say, look, you Christians, you're a small part of the society. You do what you need to do to keep um, yourself safe. And part of that is to conform to some, mm-hmm. and I put the stress on some, aspects of the broader society. Um, mm-hmm. But I say that with a little hesitancy because mm-hmm. I don't want to say that injustice is being sanctioned. What I want to say, though, is that we we can find ways to negotiate within an unjust society, um, even if we can't immediately change those laws. No, that's helpful. I, I've, I've, I mean, I'm thinking like missionaries I've talked to in in like some majority world places, like the real like uh, Papua New Guinea and others, where they're mm. like the <laughs> the level of misogyny and mm. low view of women is so profound. That if they, you know, if they're at A, they need to be at Z. We see it as a win if they're getting to, you know, D, E, F, which is still yeah. far, far from where they yeah. need to be. Yeah. But that's, those are yeah. huge steps. Yeah. It may take 20 years for a man to get from A to, to you know, G. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you can't change overnight, you know. It, it's hard. It's, it is a hard tension because, yeah, you see yeah. injustice, and you're like, it needs to end now, and we're going to not stop right. until it ends now, but it might take decades. Yes. I don't know. I, well, that, that's, that's, that's actually a good example, I think, at least in my mind, that's a good example. Yeah. Um, and we always, of course, in hindsight, you know, 
we're looking with very enlightened eyes and we, yeah. we want everything to change very quickly. Um, and of course it's the Bible for goodness sake. We want, we yeah. want the Bible to be speaking, you know, as progressively on things as we would. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but what you just said is that's a good example. It's, it's pro- pro- progression is good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we see that, I wrote a book on nonviolence and obviously I had to deal extensively with the old Testament, but that that's kind of where it was a slow progression. God met Israel where they were at in their society. He improved upon it with, I mean, you compare the laws with Hammurabi and others. It's like, man, well, this is, it's not where we would want it to be, but it's better than where the culture was. But then throughout the old Testament, you see this kind of progression towards a more, you know, humanizing ethic, like in the sermon on the Mount. Um, yeah, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, it is, but that's another good example. I think the uh, violence. I think that's a good example. Yeah. yeah. One, one more question, man. I'll let you go. I know you're a busy, man. Oh no, um, I, I don't mind chatting with you. My answers are kind of long. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> okay. um, I, 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 I've got to wrap it up here in a few minutes. So, um, sure. uh, church history. I, I, I read. I remember reading Rodney Stark wrote an article on slavery mm. and the church, mm. and mm. he said. It wasn't like the whole church was pro-slavery until, you know, um, the abolitionists came along. There, there was some diversity within the church, especially among leaders who had sometimes pretty critical views of slavery. He just said, if I remember correctly, I, he said something like, um, the, the church just didn't listen, kind of like it was. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is the church's relationship to slavery more complicated or was it pretty, in your, in your mm. knowledge, Pro slavery, well, or I'm well. I'm not a historian, so I, I make the disclaimer. But I'm also familiar with some of that that you just discussed. Okay. Um. You know. I mean, I even came across a quote from Jonathan Edwards' son, Jonathan Edwards, and uh, who who commented on on uh, Philemon and Onesimus. He he was uh, definitely not pro slavery, even though his father famously uh, was. Hmm. So um, I would say that, um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. It's a complicated answer, but it's to me, it's always about power, though. <laughs> so I think the church doesn't listen to marginal voices if people are doing if, if, if when the power people are doing well. So, hmm. you know, I mean, I, yes, I mean, the church was not of one mind and people came at it different places. I mean, when the abolitionists came along, the Quakers, the Mennonites, and such. I mean, they might have had a condescending view toward black people too, but they didn't think slavery was right. Um, so people came at it different times, different ways. But I would say, yeah, I mean, the, the folks who failed to get there, I think, were beholden by by power. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't think of, I can't, it's hard for me to see it any other way, honestly. You yeah. know, I mean, to, to dehumanize folks, I mean, if you're doing, if you're not doing well in society, maybe you'll stop to reassess. But if you're doing well, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I, I'm curious, uh, do you know uh, BJ Thompson? We, we had this conversation. He's, uh, oh, he's down, um, at, he's down in Kirk. Atlanta. Um, oh, no, BJ. No, I don't you, know. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, so we, we had... We we were talking about how we were taught in seminary and church history, and he was like, wow. "Man, you got Jonathan Edwards and all these heroes of the faith." And would like, I'm in seminary, and not, they don't even mention the fact that these dudes were owning slaves. And he's like, "I can't," and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it, almost like, "Why are we even reading these guys?" You know? And I said, "Well, I don't know. Like, what about we know Martin Luther King?" was not the most faithful to his wife. And he was, I think pretty misogynistic. Like, does that mean because he's got blatant 
kind of faults that we write off everything he did. And I, I'm not even sure where, where we end up landing on that, but I, w- I would love your perspective on how do we think through some of these, you know, blind spot would be an understatement. These, you know, Christians who just had profound blind spots in terms of how they viewed slavery. Wow. Like, can so, you, can okay, you so read you, Jonathan Edwards anymore? I don't know if you did before. So but. you're going to, you're going to dump that on me at the end of this conversation. <laughs> this heavy question. <laughs> you know, I, okay. I think of it for myself. I, I think of it in terms of, you know, what shapes people's um, worldview, what shapes their, you know, how do they look at humanity and such? Because because if the pull the pull the Dr. King example, um, okay, yes, he's in a patriarchal world, but you know, I, I think if um, if you if he were here to talk about his relationship, I don't think or his extramarital relationship, I don't think he would. Uh, would make those sound like they were good. Uh, You know, I don't think he would try to make them holy. But I do think some of the people back that we were talking about, Jonathan Edwards and such, I don't think they would even have considered owning slaves to be immoral. You know what I mean? So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is there's, if, if, Mm. if their whole, if their way of being was to dehumanize a group of people, I really have a hard time with accepting the whole theology. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but then again, I'm not a Calvinist. So I'm not. A, I'm not all that excited to read Jonathan Edwards anyway. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm making a joke on that regard. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, I I do want to. I, I want people to be whole. I want to allow for people, of course, to be make mistakes and be short sighted on things. But there's something that's yeah. fundamental at a level of disregarding women or disregarding people of color or de- you know just dehumanizing and using people is different for me than somebody who who messed up in their marriage or didn't pay their taxes or somehow, you know what I mean? There's something that in my mind, I make a different, there's a differentiation, I guess. It's not like Jonathan Edwards, you know, struggled with slave owning tendencies or something like, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> in, our, in our modern vernacular. Yeah, right. no, that, that's actually, that's really, really helpful. So, so maybe, maybe Kings, you know, and, and I don't, I, I've read a couple biographies, so I, I don't have any quotes on mm-hmm. it, but I've heard many right. people say he, he was clearly very misogynistic and how he treated mm-hmm. women. Um, yeah. But you're saying yeah. that that would, that, so that would be more similar to maybe Jonathan Edwards just swimming in a cultural environment where maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know. And not to, again, uh, not to excuse it, but. Well, I guess I don't want to excuse anybody, basically. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I think, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough yeah. about them. But I would say, I guess I didn't think of, um, I mean, I thought of Dr. King's environment, but I guess what I'm saying is I, I didn't, I wouldn't hear him thinking what he did was something that he would do out in the open. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. That's you know good. what I mean? And whereas I think Jonathan Edwards was owning slaves out in the open because right. he didn't think it was bad. Right, which is insane for a guy who studied the Bible 12 hours a day. But, um, right. Man, well, uh, I'm going to let you go, Dennis. I can talk to you for hours, man. Wish we could do ministry <laughs> together somehow, but you're way out there in cold Chicago land. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I hang out with ECC folks quite a bit, so I'm sure a pass will cross sometime yes, uh, in indeed. the flesh. So, yeah, appreciate well, you, brother. Thanks for the conversation, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for, having, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you.